You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're celebrating Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois. So like you have those moments when I'm going through a news feed and I come across something where the title grabs my attention. And then you think, well, I got to read this, right? Well, I had one of those moments a couple of weeks ago. This ran in the Dallas Morning News on March the 27th. Here's the title. This is why it grabbed me, right? Title, I'm an atheist, but between COVID and nuclear weapons, I'm ready to give God a try. See why it grabbed my attention? He opens that editorial, that op-ed with this. God, I'm coming to you in what I guess you call prayer. I realize that my situation isn't all that serious, so if you don't get to me right away, I certainly understand. While much of the world is in triage, I have only a troubling spiritual boo-boo. By way of background, I wasn't raised believing in you, and to be honest, I'm not sure I even believe in you now. But I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because of this one-two punch of a global pandemic and the threat of nuclear war has left me in need of someone to talk to. And I've heard that you shine in moments like these when there is simply no one else, and so here I am. Now, I got to tell you, I'm glad he's turning to the Lord. Where else would you turn? You have a moment where you say, I feel like the life that I thought I understood isn't working. Maybe you felt like life was under control and it no longer feels under control. As if he could manage life until the very moment that there was a global pandemic and this possibilities of a nuclear war. Up until then, apparently thought, you know what? Life can be hard, but I kind of got it figured out. But all of a sudden, you add in a couple more variables and it feels overwhelming. And that's where he finds himself. And so maybe you have felt the same way. Maybe you've had those same moments where you're walking around and it seems like everything was in this delicate balance. I mean, it was okay. It was a delicate balance, but it doesn't take much to rock our boat a little bit. And that's what's happened to him. Well, there's a day 2,000 years ago where that certainly happened where we have what we celebrated last week was on Palm Sunday, where Jesus comes into town and everybody is celebrating him, worshiping. The king is here. Well, it wasn't that many days later, was it, that we had a Good Friday, which was characterized by brutality and death and torture. And when they left Jesus on that Friday night and he gets put into a tomb, a lot of people scattered. And what's known as Holy Saturday or Silent Saturday, which was obviously yesterday, we've got that moment where like, imagine, where's God? Why is he not doing something? Oh, he was doing something. We just couldn't see it. And so we're left with this idea, what does it look like on Saturday when there's disillusionment? Maybe there's pain, there's frustration, there's quietness, maybe there's despair. What happens on that day? And I think this guy is living in that moment. What do I do? I find myself disoriented, and I don't know how to respond. Well, 
We've got a day where we're going to celebrate that. And we're going to talk about what God was doing on that Saturday to lead into this Easter Resurrection Sunday. So all of our passages this morning are, are going to be up on the screen so that we can move through those maybe a little bit more efficiently than moving back and forth through the Scripture. I will tell you this, there's a couple of points in this where we've got to make some maybe judgment calls is the right word, because you've got four people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are all sharing the story. And their stories don't always seem to just do this. And so we've got to make some interpretive decisions as we try to understand all that was going on. But we're going to begin our morning with this reality is, what did the world see? Last week, we talked about what the people saw when he wrote in. On Friday night, we talked about what God saw on Good Friday, but today we're talking about what the world saw, and we're going to begin with this idea. The world saw an empty tomb. We're going to begin with Luke's account where he writes this in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. So we've got these faithful followers. Jesus passed away on Friday. It's Sunday morning. And I, I want to call attention to the fact that these faithful followers of Christ love him with such great devotion that here we are on the third day, and they're saying, I'm going to go care for the body. They would have loved to have, have been able to grab a glass of tea or a cup of tea with him, but if he's deceased, that's not possible. You know what they can do? They can go care for his body. And so these faithful servants get up and they go to the tomb taking the spices they prepared and they found the and when they excuse me and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb but when they went in they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now if I were to ask you to maybe remove yourself and take a step back that maybe you know this story so well you're like well yeah but but let's put ourselves in the fact that these are humans and they're so overwrought with pain, emotional pain, is that they're saying, I'm still going to go and I'm going to take care of Jesus's body. That's what I can do today. And so I'm going to go do that today. We know from Luke 23 in the previous chapter that these people watched Jesus's body get laid in the tomb. It's not like they left the cross with him there. They saw his body in the tomb. And so when they show up and they're there to care for and nurture this body and they walk up and the stone is open, the tomb is open, they look around and the body of Jesus is not there. Imagine their emotion, heartache, a bad day just got worse. What do we do with this? What's going on in this? Disoriented, pain, what happened? How could this be? While they were perplexed about this, as they're standing there, what's going on? Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, I'm going to call attention to that. This is our first hint that these are not just, you know, snappy dresser guys, right? So there's something really significant going on. These are angels. And contrary to every image you probably have seen of an angel where they always have wings on, not all angels had wings, and so they walk up, they're disoriented. Jesus' body isn't there. They look into a tomb. Now, here's a picture of what a tomb in Jesus' day would have looked like, okay? It's dark in there. That's why you don't go at night to do this. You have to have the daylight spill in so that it creates enough light for them. They're there early morning, so it's not real bright, but they can look in. And so as they're in the tomb, all of a sudden there's these two in dazzling apparel that are looking at them. 
And so when they look back, they are frightened. Now, let me just tell you, if you've ever thought, oh, come on, be frightened, I mean, they're angels. Let me tell you, you'd be frightened too, right? And here's how you know what they were thinking. It's because if you go into the bathroom in the morning and you flip on the lights, you don't bow, right? You don't bow. You may squint. You may cover your eyes. You may just turn on one light. You may just use the light on your phone, but you don't bow over a bright light unless you know that you're standing in something in front of something that's supernatural. So all of a sudden they find themselves, they know they're in the presence of, of supernatural and there's angels. And so, yeah, they're frightened. We would be too. They fall on the ground and they bow. And these two men angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. And as I think about that, I'm led to the idea of, what a profound question, right? He's risen. You're in a tomb. You're looking for the risen Savior in a tomb. You're not in the right place. I think there's probably a mild rebuke there. The moment that you look up and say, come on, you're looking for someone who's risen, but you're standing in a tomb. That, that doesn't work. And then the angels continue and say, remember how he told you? I came across this phrase this week in preparing for this where it was talking about remembering is it's what activates our recognition for something. Somebody says remember, and all of a sudden our brain is like, okay, on guard, what do I need to remember? And so there's this moment, it activates our recognition. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? We've got this incredible scene and so what we know is these faithful followers, I mean, a lot of times Jesus spoke and the lost had no idea what he was saying. Sometimes he talked in such a way that those who were close to him got a little bit more information and could piece things together. But these angels clearly think these faithful followers were on the inside track of what Jesus was teaching. Remember, he told you about this while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Is that in all the emotion of the day, it would have been very easy. You know, they begin the morning, they're still distraught from Good Friday. And so they go through Saturday, they come Sunday, they're going to care for his body. And then it's like, since the time they got there, life has been in a whirlwind for them. And when the angel says, remember, activate recognition, what do we remember? He told you this was going to happen, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, he did say this. He did say that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be offered up, he was going to be crucified, he would be buried, and on the third day, he's going to rise. He said that. Can you imagine all the emotion going on there? How would you respond if you were them? Here's how these faithful followers responded. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. We don't even know who all the rest are. But we know this, that group of faithful followers left and went and told everybody they could tell. Think with me about that moment. They are, I, I would ask you to consider, do you think they're walking? I think they're probably at a brisk pace, maybe running, right? And so they're going like, 
He did it. Can you believe it? He said he was going to do it. He did it. That's amazing. You know, when he said he was going to do it, I didn't know that he could really do it, but he did it clearly. Because And the angels, remember how bright they were? And they run all the way back. And then they tell everybody. They tell those 11, those disciples who had spread that hadn't come, that hadn't even followed the body from the cross to the tomb. They didn't all do that. This group of faithful followers did. And then they go back and they tell the 11, hey, what's going on? Well, guess what? Who was it? It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. We've got a group of women who are the ones who are bestowed with the incredible gift of finding the empty tomb. And by the way, the angels didn't tell them, hey, you got to go tell everybody. Because when news is this great, you don't hold it in. I got to tell you, I've had one experience, two experiences in my life where we had children where I got to walk outside and say, the child is here. And nobody had to say, hey, you want to go tell everybody? No, you go and you share the good news. And all of a sudden we have this moment where these women go and they go and share these things with the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles to be an idle tale. Now, it's interesting, that word idle tale carries a connotation that it's almost like words said in delirium, a person who is very sick that's uttering nonsensical words. And I'm sure that if those apostles are looking around like, women, you're just being irrational. You're terribly emotional right now. You can't trust what you saw. And I'm sure that upped the game because when the angels told them to remember, they remembered. And so as the apostles are saying, I'm not so sure. You're out of your minds. I'm sure they're like, well, it worked for the angels with us. So I'm sure the women are looking around like, no, guys, remember? And they're like, yeah, I don't. The phrase was, and they did not believe them. It's actually stronger uh, in, in the original because it says they were refusing to believe. Why? Was it because it was too scary to hope for good? Was it because they thought my hopes and dreams are pinned on the fact that this is true? Were they so sad in their grief that they couldn't accept any new information? But these women became the first heralds of the empty tomb. And they show back up with the same information that these apostles had. Remember when we were still in Galilee, he said this was coming? And it's here and it's happened. And they refuse to believe it, save one. But Peter the same one who wrote 1 Peter that we studied in the fall, the same Peter who wrote 2 Peter that we just finished a couple of weeks ago, the same one that I think is desperate for this to be true, right? Why? Because Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, but you know what? I'm going to forgive you. I'm praying for you. And when you come back, I'm going to build the church upon you as the Lord cast his great vision, not one of perfection. Peter, you're still going to struggle you're going to mess up. You're going to blow it from time to time. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. I've got more in store for you. And if you're Peter in your desperation, I think you look at him and say, wait a minute. He was serious about walking out of the tomb? If he can walk out of the tomb, then what he said he was going to do in my life is possible. I think Peter gets up, rises, runs to the tomb. He stoops and looks in. He gets up there and he's like, he's not there. What a moment. But what he saw were the linen cloths by themselves. Now, if we're real honest, 
if you have somebody that broke into the tomb to rob the tomb, the body isn't of much value. You know what has all the value? The linen. The linen has the value. So Peter looks in there and says, okay, there's no body, but the linen is here? If you rob the tomb, you don't leave the linen. That's what you go for. He looks around, and then he went home marveling at what had happened. Marveling. Luke uses that word to talk about some incredible experience that leaves you spellbound. Peter walked away. He knew exactly what had happened. I think much like the women remembered all of a sudden activated recognition in Peter's life, he looks in there, he's gone, linen cloths are there. Oh, that can only mean one thing. He got up and walked out of here. And if that God who is capable of doing that, then he can do in my life what he said he was going to do in my life. And it becomes this incredible sight. We've got an empty tomb and we celebrate it. The world can see the empty tomb. You know what else the world saw? A risen Savior. It's not just that the tomb was empty because we can say, well, sure, you know, okay, so somebody would steal the linen cloths. Maybe that was an oversight. Maybe, maybe the guy dropped them. Well, it's not just that we have an empty tomb. We actually have a risen Savior. And people saw him. John 20, his account. But Mary, and this is Mary Magdalene, who we were talking about a minute ago, she stood outside weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. Well, they've already, seemingly, if I, we try to piece these together, it seems as though John is putting a couple of different accounts together. Because what we have is Mary standing outside the tomb weeping. They've already been in the tomb. And so she went, she, excuse me, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus is laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So all of a sudden she's looking around, she's crying, and she said, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. This sweet, gentle, devoted follower of Christ who went there to go nurture his deceased body is looking there. And I'm sure she's like, who could want the body? It may not matter to the world, but that body matters to me. I love him. Do you know where they put him? And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. She sees him standing there, and she turns around, and all of the emotion, whatever's going on in her soul, she didn't recognize him. Granted, this is a little bit disorienting. And Jesus said, woman, why, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. That body may be an obstacle to you, but it's not to me. That's my Jesus, and I love him. And I recognize that may be an obstacle for you in what you try to do. Know this, I love that body, and I love Jesus. And I, can I just have the body? I don't want to trouble you. Just give it to me and let me take it. Do you hear her heart? So broken. And Jesus said to her, now I would invite you to consider, what's the tone of voice that you hear in Jesus' voice when he says this? Mary. Mary. Is it say, Mary, it's me. Remember? Activate recognition. You know my voice. You followed me. Mary. And all of a sudden it lands. She said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, 
What a moment. Mary got to sing. You know, anybody could have been that person that got the gift of being the first one to sing our risen Savior. But God gave the gift of that to Mary Magdalene. This incredible, faithful, devoted follower of Christ has the first opportunity to see a risen Savior. But there were more. Matthew's account offers us this. While they were going, the women, as they run back and are doing what they're doing, telling everybody, hey, it's true. He did it. There are some people that are like, okay, we need to conceal this. While the women were going, behold, some of the guard who were guarding the tomb, the best of the best soldiers, they went to the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And I'm sure if we could listen in, it was going to sound something like this. Uh, we've got a problem. What's the problem? He's gone. What do you mean he's gone? He's not there. What do you mean he's not there? I, he's gone? I, what, do you, what do you want me to say? He's not there anymore. And all of a sudden, they assemble elders Council, they take a council and they gave sufficient sums of money to the soldiers and said, I'm sure they're looking around like, all right, what's this going to cost us? What's it going to cost us for you to not tell the world what happened? What's it going to cost us? Does character have a price? Character always has a price tag, right? So tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. Guys, these are elite soldiers. They don't fall asleep when they're standing post. That's not allowed. But you know what? They're the one whose character is going to take a hit. Give me enough money, and I will sell out my character. And they did. Just tell them. Tell them what happened. We got Mary. We got the tomb guard. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The Lord gave me this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Remember, activate recognition. He told us he was going to do this. He died for our sins according to, with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Remember, He said this. And then we get the rest of the story. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then He appeared to the Twelve, which seems to be a label just for a large group of followers of Christ. It's broader. It's broader than just the, the disciples. It has to be because they're not even 12 anymore. Judas isn't with them. So it's just a label given to a group of faithful followers. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In a Jewish court of law, it took two witnesses to verify an event. Took two. And Paul's like, you know what? We have way more than two. You go talk to Peter. You go talk to the disciples of Christ, those people who walk with him. Matter of fact, he showed up to 500 people. They're not all alive, but a lot of them are. You can get all the testimony you want. And then he appeared to James to all the apostles, as we see him continuing to show up. We have an empty tomb, and you may try to logic that away, but you can't get away from the fact we have a risen Savior. But more than that, we get this transformed life. What do I mean by that? Because Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, and he writes some stories here, like this one. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit with these remaining verses in this section of 1 Corinthians 15, because I'm going to fill in some of what Paul's referring to here. But Paul comes back and says, one untimely born, what does that mean? 
It means he didn't walk with Jesus on this earth while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He was born later than that. But he appeared to me also. I didn't walk alongside him. I didn't do ministry alongside him like the other apostles did. I was born later. But he appeared to me, dating that probably three, five, three to five, maybe six years from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven to when Paul saw him. We're going to talk about that story in a second. But Paul goes on to say that, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. People want to talk about what life was like before you knew God. Well, Paul's is pretty bad, okay? Paul's name was Saul. So when we read this, know that Saul is the apostle Paul. He changed names at his conversion. And then there's a person named Stephen. And Stephen is known as the first martyr for our faith. That story picks up in Acts chapter 7, when we read, they, the people, cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. Stephen's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, and the people didn't like it. So they bring him out of the city, and they stone him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why would you do that? Because Saul was a religious leader of the day, and Saul wants to shut this down. It's a threat to their religion of what they're doing. And so they walk up to Saul and they lay these garments at his feet as if to say, do you approve of what we've done? And Saul approved of the execution. And because Saul approved of the execution, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders approve of such actions. If you're trying to impress the religious leaders of the day, then you go all in. And that's exactly what happened. Because of the great persecution, now all of a sudden, these believers are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There's a group of devout believers who stay behind and they buried Stephen and they are grieving over the reality of that moment. But Saul, Saul stayed on ravaging the church, entering house after house. He's not even waiting for people to leave. He is sweeping through the villages. And it didn't matter, men, women, he's committing them all to prison. See, that's why Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. The apostles were the one that were bringing out the church. They were bringing it forth. They were preaching the gospel, winning the world to Christ. Paul says, you want to call me one of them? You need to know what my life was like beforehand. I was a train wreck. I'm the reason that we were trying to persecute the church. That's my background. Going back to 1 Corinthians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But... By the grace of God, I would still be doing that stuff. I don't know what's in your past. We know what's in Paul's past. But Paul says, but by the grace of God, and let me tell you, that is my story too. But by the grace of God, I would still be on another path. The grace of God changed my path because what he is and what he was doing, all of a sudden in Acts chapter 9, we see the moment he met God. And there's a couple of stories in this as we work through this, one of which is Ananias. And Ananias was a follower of the Lord, a devoted follower of the Lord. And God had a plan for Ananias that encompassed Saul. And it's going to be a scary moment if we follow this. Acts chapter 9, but St Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he is trying to ravage the church went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the church, men or women, it didn't matter. They might bring them down to Jerusalem. 
hey, chief priest, will you give me some letters of authority that I can go and arrest anybody that is preaching Christ? Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Know this, that Jesus so identifies with the follower, his followers is that to walk with the Lord is to be with Jesus himself so that when a follower of Christ is persecuted, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. He looks at Saul and says, Saul, what are you doing? Here's what I want you to do, Saul. I want you to rise. I want you to enter the city, and you're going to be told what to do when you get there. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Jesus actually showed himself to Paul in that moment. Everybody else just heard the voice. He can't see anymore. Saul rise up from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. Good thing he was with the crowd, right? So they, the people he was with, led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. And for three days, no sight. He didn't eat or drink at all. He's had an encounter with the Lord that has forever changed his life. But God had a plan for Ananias too. Ananias, do you trust me? Here's what his plan. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias? And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. It's how faithful follower responds. Lord, what do you have for me? And the Lord said, rise, go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, looking for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he saw a vision of a man named Ananias to come in, lay hands on him, that he might regain his sight. Ananias said, Lord, are you sure about this? I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he's got the authority from the chief priest to bind everybody who calls on your name. Are you sure? I mean, is this safe? Lord said, go. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles into the kings and the children of Israel. I've got a plan. And Ananias, you know about its past. I'm living in the present, and I've got a plan for the future. We're not looking at him for his past anymore. We've got a present, and I'm at work, and he's been praying, and he's coming to see you. And so I've got a mission for him. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. The fact that he redeemed me, I was a persecutor of the church. I met him on the road to Damascus, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He has an agenda for me, and he's leading me forward. Do we see it? Yeah. How about Philippians where he writes this? Not that I've already obtained this. I'm not perfect. I've not arrived on this. But I know this, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's all of our story. If you know him, that's all of our story. I'm sure, Paul, would you like a do-over? Would you like a mulligan, Paul? Yeah, I wish I hadn't done that with Stephen. I wish I hadn't ravaged the church. Can you get a mulligan? No. I can't go back. So what I've got to do today is I've got to let go of where I was and pick up the pieces today that God's grace is, by his grace, I am who I am, and he's put me on a mission that I can leave that behind, and I'm going to walk from this day forward with him. That's the gospel. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know him, what I would want you to hear is this, is there is a past that is the past, but there is a present moment to say that, Lord Jesus, when you went to the cross, you died and paid the penalty for my sin. And in doing so, you offered me life on a resurrection Sunday when you walked out of the tomb. And I no longer have to carry around the U-Haul of baggage of my past behind me. You have set me free from that, and you have given me a calling in my life that today I will press on toward the upward call of, of Christ Jesus. What a message. I don't know what your story is, but know this, is when we look up, we've got an empty tomb. We've got a risen Savior, and we've seen transformed lives. Paul's one of them. A lot of us are there too. We see it. Let me go back and close with this guy's op-ed. The sequoias are becoming charcoal. The waves have the upper hand. The bees are leaving. He even said, the bees are leaving. Listen to these words. I know there's meaning in all of this, God, but I need some help understanding what it is. Although I check daily, there are no answers in my news feed, in my inbox, or on my phone. We've all been there. We all have been there. So I've come to you. If you don't exist, then, of course, never mind the jokes on me. But if you do exist, and I expect, I suspect that in your own way you do, I hope you'll get back to me. So I'm here. We are all here. And finally, I think we are ready to listen. I hope so. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a risen Savior. We've got transformed lives. He's speaking. I hope he sees it. I hope we see it. And I hope we take note because there's a God in heaven who loves you and is so absolutely crazy about you that he did everything possible to have a relationship with you through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who walked out of the grave on this Easter morning on a resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago, having done everything to achieve a relationship with you. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.